Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. On February 28th, 1999, Rachel Barber spent the evening with her family. While they conversed and spent that precious time together, not a single one of them knew it would be their last evening as a complete family. Sometime during the evening, as the minutes and hours ticked past, Rachel spoke to someone on the telephone twice, one call lasting roughly 15 minutes while the second lasting nearly 30 minutes. This someone on the telephone was unknown to the rest of the family, but this wasn't some suspicious moment in the evening that stood out as a red flag. It wasn't until much too late that that moment would be framed in the minds of her loved ones forever. Rachel Barber, at the youthful age of 15 years old, was an ambitious and creative young woman. She was a model and diligent dance student, and her eyes were lit by the far-off stars and lights of Broadway where she dreamt of performing musicals acting up on the stage. Her natural beauty certainly didn't hurt how popular she was either, which she was very, and she had a steady high school relationship with her boyfriend Manny Carella. Everyone was attracted to her vivacious personality and natural charisma. On March 1st, Rachel had told her friends at her studio, the Dance Factory in Richmond, Melbourne, that she was headed to a job that would pay her lots of money. She'd also spoken to her boyfriend Manny about the opportunity, but had been overly secretive about it, telling him that she couldn't let him know the details of the job, but she did let him know that the job was above board, and that a girl she knew was facilitating the opportunity, one which she felt safe around. Rachel Barber left the dance studio on March 1st, 1999, and was seen getting on the tram with a blonde woman. And that's the last time she was seen alive. Her father had been scheduled to pick her up at 6.15pm, where she promised to be back at the tram stop waiting for him to take her home, but she never arrived. Given how out of character this was in being the year 1999, well before teenagers having a cell phone in their pocket was even remotely commonplace. Her parents became more and more concerned as the minutes ticked by and the worst imaginable scenarios began to play through their minds. Elizabeth Barber, Rachel's mother, began making phone calls, trying to track down her missing daughter. She called Manny, Rachel's boyfriend, as well as her friends, asking if anyone had seen her, pleading for information regarding where she might be. While she made those heartbreaking phone calls, Michael Barber, Rachel's father, drove about town, looking for Rachel. But as he found no evidence or sign of her, the futility of his attempt became more and more apparent. As they became aware that they weren't going to be able to handle this on their own and within their own family, Elizabeth, Rachel's mother, called police to report Rachel's disappearance, and the missing person's case was opened. But when the family brought in pictures the next day to facilitate and flesh out the missing person's report that they had been told, and assumed would have been opened by then, they were in fact told that one had not been officially filed. 
there hadn't been a missing persons case opened as the Barber family had been led to believe. Unfortunately, creeps, police were once again convinced that she was a runaway and would eventually show up. Once again, as we've discussed too often before, it was left to the ingenuity of Rachel's mother to try and find a lead as to her daughter's whereabouts. Elizabeth Barber began searching the phone records for clues. Perhaps Rachel had discussed running away with someone. Perhaps she'd made a string of phone calls to Manny the night before and they were eloping. But that's not what she found. Elizabeth Barber noticed an unknown number that had called the house in the days before Rachel vanished. On March 2nd, police had come to terms with the fact that Rachel was in fact actually missing, but valuable time had already been lost. I don't exactly want to give investigators credit in this moment, but I will say that once their mind was settled on the fact that Rachel was in fact missing, they did bring in an enormous number of people, and that group of people were interrogated, including her boyfriend, her school and dance friends, as well as potential witnesses on the street, in an attempt to reconstruct the day she went missing. Investigators discovered that at 5.35 p.m. after school, Rachel had walked with school friends down Church Street to Bridge Road, and there she said goodbye and moved on by herself at 5.45 p.m. And thanks to Rachel's mother, Elizabeth, investigators were able to link the unknown phone calls on the call records to an old friend of the Barber family, Caroline Robertson. And that's who Rachel had met after departing with her friends. Rachel and Caroline Reed Robertson had boarded the tram. Caroline had told Rachel that the meeting they had arranged after her dance class was to get her to participate in some sort of psychological experiment for which Rachel would be paid $100 in cash. In an alternative version of events, Caroline had told Rachel that she would give Rachel $500 for taking part in a confidential psychological survey. In the case of both versions of events, she was unable to tell her family about it, as it was confidential. Another student, though, serendipitously had been riding on the same tram as the two that evening, and told police, I remember that Rachel looked very beautiful, and that she was just amazing compared to her friend, who seemed like a simpleton. Rachel and Caroline exited the tram at the Pogrand stop and walked to Caroline's apartment. At roughly 6.40 p.m., a witness saw Rachel with a girl later identified as Caroline near Caroline's home, and then sometime later, a neighbor heard screams emanating from Caroline's apartment. But at the time, he thought it was perhaps a movie or something else. Either way, he thought very little of it. Based on that information, police acquired a search warrant for Caroline's apartment. When they arrived at the apartment, the door was locked, and the fire department was called to break down the door. Caroline lay on the floor as they entered, passed out having possibly suffered an epileptic seizure. But the room held enough clues for investigators to start piecing together the truth. Caroline had been packing to leave. She'd recently changed the color of her hair, and that new hair color also matched the woman Rachel had been seen with on the tram. They found bags of Rachel's clothes, as well as a birth certificate filled out with the name Rachel Elizabeth Barber, and... Last but not least, a sickening murder plot journal. Caroline Robertson was taken into custody to be interrogated, but police wouldn't have to press or push for nearly as long as one would think, as Caroline quickly confessed to the murder. On March 13th, 
1999, police made a heartbreaking call to the Barber family home. They'd found her. Investigators had traveled to Kilmore, where, based on the information given to them by Caroline, they would find Rachel Barber's body, savagely murdered and buried in a shallow grave with a phone cord still tightly coiled around her neck. Caroline wasn't some idle admirer of Rachel's, and this wasn't a random act of violence. Caroline Robertson was a friend of the Barber family. She'd babysat Rachel and her siblings when they were younger. But as time passed, she began to idolize Rachel, Rachel's beauty and popularity, and she eventually became obsessed with the young 15-year-old girl. Caroline's co-workers told police that she'd taken more than a few sick days leading up to March 1st, 1999, and that she'd awkwardly and artificially brought up the fact that she knew a girl named Rachel that had a history of being a runaway. She was saying those things because the murder was premeditated. She'd planned to kill her friend far in advance. She would drug her, disfigure her body, and stuff her body in a duffel bag and dump her somewhere remote where no one would find her. And all of this because Caroline actually wanted to become Rachel. She fantasized about stealing her identity. She looked at Rachel as someone who had every desirable quality a person could have and all of those qualities that she was lacking. She detailed in her journal her murder plot and included graphic notes as well as sketches of herself with hurtful words around it like fat and ugly because that's how Caroline viewed herself. She was extremely self-conscious of how she perceived herself but also how others perceived her. And as her negative feelings about herself grew into manic obsession, so did her obsession with becoming Rachel Barber. As the reality that Caroline could never have what Rachel had, a terrible jealousy had built in her. And from that jealousy was born the plot to steal Rachel's identity. She'd manipulate Rachel's trust in her, invite her to the apartment under false guise, trusting that Rachel wouldn't tell her friends and family. And then she'd kill her. Caroline had drugged Rachel by lacing the pizza with antihistamine, and once that had done its job, Caroline wrapped a phone cord which she'd taken from work and strangled her friend to death. While police buzzed about town and her parents were frantically searching for her, Caroline had kept Rachel's body in the wardrobe for a number of days before finally burying Rachel in a shallow grave in the pet cemetery at her father's farm. Caroline Robertson made her appearance in court on October 20th and pled guilty to premeditated murder. She stated that she wanted to become someone else by using Rachel's image to reinvent herself. Caroline was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Michael Crudson, a psychologist who treated Caroline for a period of time incarceration, said in his report that she discussed a moment of hesitation she'd had before killing Rachel, but ultimately had resolved to follow through. While strangling Rachel, Caroline had told her to only think of nice and pleasant things. But once she was done, she never removed the cord. It sat there tightly wrapped around Rachel's neck, a complete sign of disrespect and lack of remorse. Caroline Robertson was paroled in 2015 and is a free woman, no longer behind bars for her crime. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member 
by visiting patreon.com slash tales by Cole, where we release a Patreon exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.